Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Start Your Week. You'll need to know on news and politics. I'm Roz Taylor and joining me this week is Hannah Fern. Hello, Hannah. Hi, Roz. After a brief spasm of unity during the autumn statement, it is back to normal in the Conservative Party. You'll recall that net migration has gone up to 745,000, and a lot of Tory MPs are not at all happy about that. The new Home Secretary, James Cleverley, weighed in at the weekend on the benighted Rwanda scheme. What did he say about it? Well, he used really a remarkable form of words. He said that the Rwanda plan isn't the be-all and end-all of migration policy, which is amusing because obviously, of course, he's right about that. There's a large amount to migration policy and this is only one part of the plan that was never going to work anyway. But given that Sunak is talking about all the ways to get around the Human Rights Act and other legislation, he's really looking like he's taken a split away from his own government. He's leaving Laura Trott to play it down and say that, that, you know, that the Rwanda plan is still absolutely central to the government's intentions on migration. But uh, yeah, clearly a split there and clearly cleverly on the side of the sensible. And he's apparently not travelling to Rwanda this week to sign a new treaty and quite possibly not next week either. So people are getting impatient, specifically the new Conservatives group. What do they want exactly? Well, they've issued a statement demanding that the MP brings down net migration. As you mentioned, it's record figures now, and that's nothing to do with small broats or Rwanda, obviously. It's actually three times higher than before Brexit. So this group, the New Conservatives, have said that they think that this is a, quote, a do or die issue for the party. Um, And Jemrick is really pigging on that. So obviously, he's not using those kind of words. He's not part of that group. But he is calling for a new five-point plan on migration, which includes banning dependents coming in with those who do come through the legal routes, which raises questions for me. Why? We need doctors, very specifically. (laughs) We should surely want doctors to bring their children with them. The other thing is there's absolutely no evidence that the new Conservatives are right that this is a do-or-die issue for the Tory party because it's completely dropped out of the top three issues in all of the consistent polling about what people care about ahead of the general election next year, which is now economy, prices and inflation and the NHS. So is this really the thing that that the party should tear themselves up about? Probably not. But the new Conservatives don't agree on that. There have also been a lot of warnings over the weekend from migration experts that if you bring in a higher level, minimum salary level for migrants, then it will make it impossible for social care providers to recruit people in this country. And that doesn't seem to be a problem that New Conservatives or anyone else in the party wants to address. No. And actually, that's one of the the issues that Labour want, you know, that that they need to think about because that's part of their plan. Meanwhile, friends of Nigel Farage, who you'll remember is in the I'm a Celeb jungle, showing rather more of himself than most of us wish to see, told the son (laughs) that he is planning a comeback in the new year. You might reasonably ask how, since he's not an elected politician, but he's associated with the Reform Party. He is not, though, its leader. Hannah, what is going on here? (laughs) 
It does seem that Richard Tice, the now leader of reform, is holding the door wide open to Farage. Farage, as you mentioned, currently in the jungle, doing the eating of the maggots and testicles and God knows what else, and depressingly doing a really good job of that, which is, you know, confirms my view that only completely psychopathic people <laughs> can actually get through those tasks without cr- without cringing. So he has said that the more help that Nigel can give, the better. So really interesting that he hasn't in that sentence really ruled out Farage coming back as leader. And, uh, you know, sources apparently say he's he's not ruling out that option for the future of the party. But the interesting thing is that Farage refuses to stand in first-past-the-post elections, because presumably because he keeps de- uh, racking up devastating losses whenever he does. So that's a hurdle if he thinks he's going to have some kind of comeback. The party's in uh, a bit of disarray as well, because this weekend it's been forced to deny accusations that it has offered a large sum of cash to Lee Anderson to defect from the Conservative Party. A strange choice of person if you're trying to shore up some strength, but there we are. So could Farage be you know, uh, back in the ring leading a opposition party? Possibly. He certainly told people in the jungle that he applied to it specifically because he wants a fresh audience. So depressingly watch that space. <laughs> And of course, there are some Tories who want him in this Conservative Party, although there are other Conservatives who say they would leave if Nigel Farage joined the Conservative Party. But anyway, apparently he's in line to be camp leader soon. So yeah, if you haven't been watching that, I advise Dear you not me. to carry on not watching him. <laughs> Labour's poll lead appears to have increased since the autumn statement, despite the national insurance cut that was supposed to be such a game changer. Do we have a better sense over the weekend of Labour's stance on migration? Well, yes and no. They have said that they won't set an arbitrary target on net migration, which I think sounds quite wishy-washy to the electorate, but it's important to sort of reflect on the fact that that is honest because targets on migration, whenever they're set, are indeed completely arbitrary. You're not able to influence all the factors that impact on legal migration. So it's honest to, to admit there won't be an arbitrary target set But that does make it very difficult for them to sort of talk about what their policy is. So they've said that they believe that their overall policy plan will lead to a cut. One senior frontbencher has briefed the newspapers over the weekend saying that Labour wants to dramatically cut net migration to around 200,000 a year. So that's a huge slash. And they think that they can do this by various incentives and disincentives. So scrapping the 20% wage discount that workers from overseas get, i.e. employers can pay workers from overseas 20% less. So if you scrap that, it discourages employers from choosing overseas labour instead of home labour. So they're going to try that. Uh, They also want to review the skilled work salary threshold, as you said, which is currently set at 26,000. And together, they believe that will lead to a significant drop. But yeah, no target which is sensible, but isn't easy to sell. At the COVID inquiry, they're hearing from three mayors today, including Andy Burnham, which should be fairly spicy. Michael Gove is up tomorrow, then Dominic Raad, Sajid Chavid and Matt Hancock on Thursday. Hancock has not come off well out of the evidence so far, has he? Not well at all. He has been painted as incompetent, obsessed with self-promotion over our national safety. His allies claim he's been made a scapegoat. And um, one told The Observer that 
the idea that others found him dishonest at the time, which is something that has been popping up as part of the inquiry, actually isn't true at all, and that people are just trying to save face. But so now he comes out in front of the inquiry this week. He obviously is going to want to defend his name against a lot of these accusations. I think the interesting thing, the trouble for him, I suppose, is that he rushed out a book on this. So unless he's going to contradict his own diaries, which he published with the benefit of hindsight on his own diaries, then there's really nothing new that he can tell us. So that does leave him in a bit of a sticky spot, I suppose. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the Slow Newscast from Tortoise... Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. And in Israel, the truce is entering its third day. More hostages and prisoners were released yesterday. There was some very moving footage of kids and their parents being reunited in Israel. And aid trucks have been going into Gaza. What do we know about the situation there? Yeah, so Hamas has handed over 17 hostages, I think, at the last count. And Israel has freed 39 prisoners. So this is within you know, a much larger deal Hamas really does want to seek to extend the four-day pause and increase the hostage exchange. And they've asked for 10 prisoners a day as part of this ongoing pause in return. Israel hasn't responded yet. Everyone's looking at Netanyahu this morning. So what happens next does very much depend on the Israeli administration as to how they respond to this offer. It's such a tense period. And what happens next after this pause is probably the key issue. It's all been brokered by Qatar, hasn't it, so far? Do we have a sense that this truce really could be extended and we might see a slowing down in the war after the horrible last few weeks? Obviously, the longer it goes on, and we'd have to hope for that. And there is, there does seem to be an appetite for an extension, certainly in the short term. But Israel has very publicly insisted that this is only a temporary period of calm and that it was still committed to wiping Hamas out. And if you look at what's been happening in the West Bank, Israel's been controversially making arrests in that area. If the pause comes to an end and a large-scale you know, effort or, or push into Gaza continues, and that means aggressive action in the south, then the humanitarian disaster will only worsen there. At the moment, there's an area called the Al-Mawasi humanitarian zone, which is where Israel suggests that all civilians should, should head towards in Gaza to protect their own lives. But according to aid agencies, that area is nothing is anything but a humanitarian zone. It's, a, it's desert, it has no infrastructure. The UN really doesn't want to establish a new refugee camp in that area. So watching this, if we don't see a, a slowing down in the, in the longer term, then it feels like a two-state solution feels increasingly remote, which is very hard to watch unfold. On Saturday, there was another big pro-Palestinian march in London, and on Sunday, a march against anti-Semitism which was attended by several well-known people, including Boris Johnson and his smallest child. Tell us about that. I think about 100,000 took part in that march against anti-Semitism. And as you said, there'd been a very large 
pro-Palestinian rally the day before. Anti-Semitism rally is an interesting one because it, it, it was specifically not about a pro-Israel approach in this conflict. It was very much about standing against the rise of anti-Semitism in the UK, which is a staggering problem. Half of British Jews are saying now that they're considering leaving the UK. And in London specifically, and this really was quite shocked me when I saw this statistic, since the 7th of October, when obviously the, the conflict began with the Hamas terrorist attack, hate crimes in London against Jews are up over a thousand percent. A thousand percent. So it's it's a really frightening time for, for British Jews. And I think on both sides of this conflict, where the you know, where there are obviously a large outpouring of support for civilians in Gaza as well, people feel powerless and standing in solidarity with something that's against hate and, and, and pro, you know, into community integration is just something that people can do. So I'm not surprised it was so popular, pleased to see people standing up against uh, the scourge of of uh, anti-Semitism in, in modern Britain. In Dubai, COP28 gets underway on Thursday. Now, we won't have any kind of agreement until mid-December, but what might get achieved this year? And I ask you that with a degree of trepidation, because there are already reports coming out that Dubai has been trying to arrange meetings about fossil fuels on the side. That's an interesting fringe event, isn't it? <laughs> well, there, actually, there are some reasons for hope. So let's try and take these three things. One is that there's going to be the first global stock take on progress since Paris 2015 at this uh, COP. So that will be really interesting to see what the global state of progress, or importantly, lack of it, is that there'll be an actual clear chart, I suppose, of, of what's happened and how, what has been achieved in the last eight years. So maybe that'll have a positive message, maybe it won't, but interesting to have the figures. The second thing that's really important is that for the first time, this COP will have a large strand of work around food on it. Up until now, it's all been about literally emissions and, and, and Celsius rise and you know the plan to reduce global warming. But now it's looking at the impact and how we manage that across the world. So there will be a declaration together agreed on a roadmap to feeding the world's population in a warming planet while also sticking to a 1.5 degree rise. So a genuine plan for food sustainability in the world that we will live in while attempting not to rise you know, the global warming any further. So a proper strategy. And the third thing is that this is the first time there's going to be a real clear focus on methane as well. Now, I didn't know very much about this, but apparently methane is one of the forgotten emissions that really does contribute more to warming than the many of the previous calculations have, have sort of factored in. And there's going to be a specific effort looking at how we can cut methane and what contribution that might make. So those three things, I think, are wants to watch and might genuinely be useful achievements this year. And this year, Prince Charles has been allowed to go and make a speech. <laughs> yeah. The Pope is also making a speech. Um, but they stopped him last year, didn't they? They did. I think they were worried that he'd go off on one. <laughs> he must be feeling a bit funny this year about standing up and making an impassioned you know, s statement from the heart, which you would hope that he would make as a world leader. Given that he's had to stand and, and give the king's speech with all of that nonsense about rolling back on 2050, so yeah, difficult one for him. He can't be seen to step away from his own government's plan, and yet he probably does want to. 
Uh, it's the endless juggle between the constitutional role and showing that you have a personality. <laughs> exactly that. And I want to ask you about the leasehold reform bill, which is in the Commons this week. This is an issue close to your heart, Hannah. Yes. What is it going to do? And is it enough? Well, it won't do enough, basically. Campaigners and indeed the government have been promising for a long time a leasehold reform bill that would really completely shake up the system and move towards ending the trap of leasehold, which for many, many, many you know homeowners absolutely ruins their finances. Um, unfortunately, this particular bill is a complete shambles. It doesn't achieve its aims. And I do think that Michael Gove in his heart, knows this is not the bill he wants to put forward, but there's been endless compromise and so on. All it contains is a ban for leasehold on new homes. Now, many people listening to this uh, podcast who have not been following this closely might not realise that it was even possible for a home, not a flat, but a house to be leasehold. That is what started to occur in the big development boom in the kind of Cameron years around when he was pushing the new kind of forms of access to home ownership for young people with help to buy and so on. That was a massive overreach of the property development company and should never have been allowed to happen in the first place. So, of course, the fact that houses are no longer allowed to be leasehold if this bill passes is essential. But I would imagine here that no, most people here didn't even know that was possible. In terms of flats, there's no change, really. There's absolutely no ban on new leasehold flats. And more than half of all newly built properties are flats. So we've got an ongoing issue. And 70% of existing leaseholds are flats too. The only thing it does give that we should be happy about is it will give leaseholders quite a bit more control over ground rent and service charges, which you know does protect them a little bit financially. But it doesn't go anywhere near the start of any sort of roadmap towards banning leasehold altogether and converting it into something, say, such as common hold, where everybody in a building shares the rights of ownership uh, of a building. Gove still claims he wants to ban it altogether, and this is just the starting point. Well, if that's true, then the very least he could have done was ban new leasehold flats. And he's chosen not to force that through. So I don't have much hope that this is going to lead to much change for the majority of people who are stuck in a leasehold hell. The Greek PM is visiting Britain this week. Are the Parthenon marbles going to go back to Greece? I think that depends if we get a Labour government, (laughs) because uh, Greece has obviously been frustrated about the lack of progress on the marbles. There hasn't been much movement at all under this government, but Labour has now promised that there will be some kind of loan agreement if they get into government, where they'll be loaned back to Greece in a long-standing arrangement. So, that was possible. If you want to see that happen, you know how to vote. (laughs) And coming up next weekend, train strikes again on various lines. The hopes of a settlement seem to have been dashed and we're now into the 18th month of this dispute. And there's a new book about the royals out by a writer called Omid Scobie. And judging by the front of some of today's papers, William doesn't like it. I'm sure we'll hear much more as the week goes on about all that book's contents. Finally, it's December on Friday, and according to the Express, for what that's worth, there's an Arctic blast on the way. Yeah. I actually check the um, check the weather forecast, and it is going down to minus three in my part of London, so that is fairly Arctic. Are you ready for this, Hannah? 
No. By the way, it's going to be Thursday morning if anyone's interested when when you'll really see the ice and potential snow because I'm supposed to be up in Chester on Thursday morning and I've got to get back for the school run. So I'm now slightly paranoid I'm going to get snowed in uh, to Chester city centre. So yeah, if anyone lives up there and you see me panicking trying to get out, <laughs> that's why. Yeah, I don't mind the snow. I just hope we don't have what we had last winter, which was, oh, was um, awful. two yeah. weeks of freezing and just slush and icy pavements and yeah that was not not pleasant when do we get to a stage where we just groan when we see this rather than light up with joy because i've definitely crossed the rubicon now i have to say yeah for me it was about the age of 45 <laughs> god i've gone early ah. well thanks so much hannah thank you very much ross you can support us to keep making bunkers for just £3 a month. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Ros Taylor with Hannah Fern. The producer was Liam Tate and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.